Well, as we enter into Lent, we're entering a new series, Jesus's farewell message. And our reading for today uh, for that is the beginning of John chapter 13, uh, beginning with verses 1 through 7. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. And then verses 34 through 35, Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Henry Nouwen was a Catholic priest and a professor at Harvard. He wrote profusely on topics of peace and spirituality, and he was a world-renowned lecturer. He was sort of a, a spiritual guru for Christians. He thrived on the affection that was lauded on him from around the world. His writings were considered the pinnacle of what the Christian life is all about. And yet for Henry, something was missing. He decided to give up his teaching position at Harvard, and he moved into a communal home for severely mentally handicapped persons and their caregivers. Henry said this move was the one time in his life that he felt God calling him to a specific action, and yet it was the hardest transition he ever made. Now, when recorded about his decision in his journal, I love Jesus, but I want to hold on to my own independence, even when that independence brings no real freedom. I love Jesus, but do not want to lose the respect of my professional colleagues, even though their respect does not grow me spiritually. I love Jesus, but do not want to give up my writing plans, travel plans, and speaking plans, even when those plans are more to my glory than to the glory of God. Shortly after moving into the daybreak community, Nowen had a breakdown, crying uncontrollably for hours. He realized that with all of the accolades he had received from all around the world, he had never received such unconditional love and acceptance as he had living with a handful of mentally handicapped individuals. They didn't care about his many degrees, his professional accomplishments, his best-selling books, his tours of the world. They just cared about Henry. Now and wrote about life there, when there are no special crises, we live together as a family, gradually forgetting who is handicapped and who is not. We all have our gifts, our struggles, our strengths and weaknesses. We eat together, play together, and go out together. We laugh a lot, we cry a lot, sometimes both at the same time. Nowen became the primary caregiver to a man named Adam. Here is how he describes Adam in his writing. Adam is the weakest person of our family. 
He is a 25-year-old man who cannot speak, cannot dress or undress himself, cannot walk alone or eat without much help. He does not cry or laugh and only occasionally makes eye contact. His back is distorted and his arm and leg movements are very twisted. He suffers from severe epilepsy and notwithstanding heavy medication, there are few days without grand mal seizures. Sometimes he grows suddenly rigid. He utters a howling groan, and on a few occasions, I have seen a big tear coming down his cheek. It takes me about an hour and a half to wake Adam up, give him his medication, undress him, carry him to the bath, wash him, shave him, clean his teeth, dress him, walk him to the kitchen, give him his breakfast, put him in a wheelchair, and bring him to the place where he spends most of his day with various therapeutic exercises. Popular Christian author Philip Yancey spent a day there with Henry Nouwen, watching his daily routine, and he writes, I must admit I had a fleeting doubt as to whether this was the best use of the busy priest's time. I had heard Henry Nouwen speak and read many of his books and recognized all that he had to offer. Could not someone else take over the manual chores of caring for Adam? Back in his office, when I carefully broached the subject with Nouwen himself, he informed me that I had completely misinterpreted him. I am not giving up anything, he insisted. It is I, not Adam, who gets the main benefit of our friendship. As I have loved you, Jesus said to his disciples, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I think Henry Nouwen's story is an example of how Jesus' call to love one another goes so far beyond what we usually think. True love involves sacrifice. It entails commitment. But the sacrifice and the commitment ultimately benefit us as much as anyone. The occasion for Jesus' teaching on loving one another was a meal that we have come to know as the Last Supper. Jesus and his disciples were gathered together in an upper room to eat the Passover meal. It was the same night that Jesus would later be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. The next day, he would be crucified. His disciples didn't know that yet. Not that Jesus hadn't warned them. He had told them several times what was to come, but they hadn't understood. They couldn't yet grasp the severity of what Jesus had been teaching all along. The Last Supper was not just a celebration of the Passover, although it was that too. It was not just an institution of the Sacrament of Holy Communion, although that would happen during the meal as well. The primary purpose for this gathering of disciples in that upper room was for Jesus to give them his valedictory address. It was an opportunity for him to remind them one last time of all the things he had been trying to instill in them over the past three years. It was one more opportunity to get them to understand what it had all been about. And it would and what it would be about when they saw him arrested and when he would be nailed to the cross and when he would die and when they would see him alive again three days later. These chapters that we're looking at from the Gospel of John 
during this season of Lent. Francis Chan calls it Jesus' farewell message. Bible scholars refer to it as the farewell discourse. Jesus was saying goodbye to his disciples. Not forever, obviously, but he was about to take a serious and consequential leave from them, and he wanted them to be prepared. That's the point of this entire section of John's Gospel. Christ was preparing his disciples for what was about to happen. Although this scene takes place at the Last Supper, John doesn't report anything about the institution of Holy Communion. Five entire chapters that take place in that upper room that night, not a word in John about the bread being the body or the wine being the blood. He's the only one of the four gospel writers who doesn't share that story. Instead, he reports more on Jesus' words, more of Jesus' teachings during that gathering, more than any other gospel. Before the three chapters of Jesus' speech that night, which come in John 14 through 16, or the full chapter of prayer that comes in John 17, first there was the foot washing. That's what we find in the beginning of chapter 13. This is the beginning of John's description of the Last Supper. The meal was already taking place. In fact, the institution of Holy Communion may have already happened. We don't know. What we do know is that the disciples were all still there, including Judas, even though John says the devil had already prompted Judas to betray Jesus. As the meal was still in progress, Jesus took up a towel, filled a basin with water, and began to wash the disciples' feet. That's more than a bit strange. Normally, washing a person's feet was something that would happen when they first entered the room. People had been out all day long walking for miles in sandals. Their feet would get dirty and calloused and dried out and cracked. As they entered a home, having the opportunity to wash their feet, to, to clean them off, to soothe them a little bit, that would be an act of hospitality to the guest coming into the house. It was not, however an act of hospitality that the host would perform. That's what makes this passage really strange, more, more so than the fact that Jesus did it in the middle of the meal rather than when the disciples first entered, but the fact that he did it himself, that he was the one washing their feet. That's not what the host did. The host would provide a basin and a towel to the guests so that they could kick off their sandals and wash their own nasty feet. If the host was wealthy, he had some servants that he could boss around. He might have a servant wash the feet of his guests, but he would never deign to wash their feet himself. It was the lowliest of low tasks. It was degrading. Jesus, by doing this, was putting himself below all of them. He was putting himself in the place of a slave. No wonder Simon Peter told Jesus, you will never wash my feet, not Jesus, not his master, not ever. Still, there was Jesus with the wash basin and the towel he knelt in front of them one by one and washed their feet, calluses and all, even Judas. Even Judas, 
who Jesus knew was about to go out and betray him for 30 pieces of silver, Jesus made himself a servant to Judas. Then in verses 14 and 15, Jesus told them why, what this foot washing had all been about. Now that, that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example, he continued, that you should do as I have done for you. Some churches take, that, take those words very literally. There are some churches in which foot washing is considered a third sacrament along with baptism and Holy Communion. I'm really glad that the United, church, United Methodist Church is not one of them. No offense, but I don't really want to touch any of your dirty feet. <laughs> Not that I wouldn't, though. If it's what you really needed in order to feel God's love and come to faith. Because that is the point of this passage. That, that's the point of the whole foot washing episode. It's the point of the incarnation. It's the point of the crucifixion. It's the point of the entire Bible. God would go to any lengths necessary to show his love for us and to bring us to faith. That was what Jesus was teaching the disciples, that he, who was God, had become a servant to them in love. And when he was no longer with them in the flesh, he wanted them to be prepared to do the same for others. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. What is it that Christ has done for you? Did he kneel down in front of you, take off your shoes and socks, and wash the stink off your feet? If he did, then you, my friend, have a story to tell, and I want to hear it. What he has done for all of us is to love us unconditionally, to serve us so that we might come to faith. What he has done for us is to invite us into friendship, invite us into his family, no matter who we are or where we come from. What he has done for us is to wash us clean of our sin and guilt and shame. What he has done for us is to lay down his life on our behalf. What Christ has done is simply to love us. Back in the days before ultrasounds and, and sonograms, people who were expecting a birth of a child, didn't know whether they were preparing for a little boy or a little girl. You just had to wait, find out what you got when the child came. Sometimes that meant people who were having twins didn't know they were having twins until one child came out and there was still another one in there. One man who was surprised to come into the delivery room and be greeted not by one little boy but by two was overwhelmed at the thought of being the father of twins Becoming a father for the first time was scary enough, but two at once. The nurse handed both of the babies to him to hold at the same time. And as he looked down at the tiny bundle in each arm, he began to pray, Lord, what in the world am I going to do? And just as quickly as he had prayed that, he says the answer came back to him, just love them. Just love them. That's all that, that God really asks or expects of us, not, 
not just for our own children, but for all of God's children, whoever they are. Just love them. Whatever they need, just love them. Later in chapter 13, Jesus says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. He wasn't just talking about foot washing, was he? This goes far beyond the particular actions of that evening in the upper room. When Jesus said, as I have loved you, that extends out to what he would go through in the Garden of Gethsemane. What he would endure in the temple court in front of the Sanhedrin and in Herod's palace and at the judgment seat of Pilate and on the Via Dolorosa and ultimately on the cross. Jesus was preparing his disciples for all of that. He, he wanted them to know that everything he was doing, everything he would go through, all of the pain he would endure, all of it was for them. He was doing it to cleanse them, to wash them, to make them holy. He was doing it to welcome them, to comfort them, to bring them back to God. He was doing it to love them, to serve them. And he did it all for us, too. He did it to love us, to serve us. And he wants us, just like he wanted his first disciples, to be ready to love and to serve each other, even to that same extent. He calls it a new commandment. A new commandment, I give you. Well, the idea of loving others, that was not new. The command to, to, love, to love others, they had had that for a long time. The part that was new was that expression, even as I have loved you. It's the extent to which love goes. That is what was new. Even as I have done for you, you must do likewise for one another. It's one thing to say, I love this person or that person or that I love people in general. It's another thing to be willing to lay down my life. That's what Jesus did. And when Jesus, who did lay down his life for us, says, just as I have loved you, so you must love one another, that puts love in a whole new light, doesn't it? He wasn't just talking about being a nice guy, saying a friendly hello to your neighbors, maybe doing a good deed for someone every once in a while. No more is it enough just to do our little part and help out so that we can pat ourselves on the back and go on living life for ourselves. Now, love means go all the way. Go all out. Do everything that you can for one another, even if it means putting everything on the line. No matter who it is, just love them. No matter what it takes, just love them. That's what Jesus was trying to 
get across to his disciples in the upper room that night. He was preparing them for a time when he would no longer be with them in body, and they would be the ones doing the ministry. They would be the ones standing in front of crowds of people, staring right into the faces of sinners of all shapes and sizes, all suffering from their own form of brokenness, all longing to be made whole. And there would be so many times after Jesus departed into heaven when the disciples would say to themselves, what in the world are we going to do? But then they would remember Jesus with that wash basin and that towel. They would remember his example, his servanthood, his love. They would remember how he expected them to treat others. And they would say to one another, oh, that's right. We just love them. We just love them. May we do likewise. Amen.